Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Hello, everyone. We're here today on February 3rd, 2021, talking with Reverend James J. Kahn, a member of the Society of Jesus, who currently resides in Rome. Welcome, Father Kahn. Thank you, Donna. You are the most recent 2020 Roll of Law Award recipient, and we have your talk that you gave, and we will post that as a podcast here alongside this interview. I just wanted to take this opportunity to ask you some questions about things that you may have mentioned in your Rule of Law acceptance talk, but mostly just for folks to get to know you a little better. So you are in Rome. Tell us a little bit about what it's like right now to be in Rome. Well, it's not quite what I expected when I accepted the position that was offered me. I'm the superior of the Casa Santa Maria, which is located in the very center of Rome, very close to the Piazza Venezia, to the Gregorian University. And it was the original location. It's an early 17th century palazzo. And it was the original location of the North American College. The U.S. bishops uh, acquired it in uh, 1859, and uh, the North American College was established by uh, Pius IX uh, at that time. And it was the location of the seminary uh, through the beginning of the Second World War, at which time everyone had to flee and uh, all the American seminarians went home and returned uh, after the war. And after the war, uh, the U.S. bishops built a, the magnificent, huge uh, North American College Seminary on the Janiculum Hill near the Vatican. And the, the original location was used as the graduate student residence. So for young priests who were doing um, their graduate study. So, any number of U.S. priests who are members of the CLSA and who studied in Rome for their licentiate or their doctorate probably lived here. At least diocesan priests do. I'm the first religious, I'm the 12th uh, superior of the Casa from the time that it was refounded as the graduate residence. And uh, I'm the, the only religious or, you know, member of a religious institute who has uh, held this position. I thought it might be a little awkward, but it wasn't really at all. Um, I knew the Casa quite well because a number of my American classmates from my own studies uh, in the early 80s, my own canon law studies, a number of my classmates did live here. Some were my classmates at the Greg, like Cardinal Burke, Bishop Salmatano from Rochester, New York now, Archbishop Brolio from the military, Archbishop Paul Gallagher, an Englishman who uh, is now the uh, foreign minister, as it were, of the Holy See. So those are all young priests who were, who were students with me. And we've remained, uh, uh, Bishop Bob Dealey from uh, Portland. Uh, anyway, all kinds of, lots of people who aren't bishops too, but uh, those are the ones that others uh, perhaps would know. But we had uh, a wonderful fraternity there uh, I was one of, of two Jesuits who were uh, in class together, one of whom uh, is what I call, a, you know, kind of a non-practicing kind of lawyer. He, he teaches high school Latin and religion in, uh, in California, but he was one of the 
one of the team of the three uh, translators of the second version of the of the code uh, in English. He and with Bishop Dealey and uh, Father Monsignor John Rankin uh, were the three translators. Father Mike Moody is his name. So those were great days. And I already had been a priest for six years when I started there. I had done some graduate studies in American history. And um, then I was four years high school principal before I, uh, before I came to Rome to study my canon law. I saw that in your talk that you were a high school principal. Had you taught before that? I, yes, hope I did. Jumping I was a Latin teacher <laughs> and uh, uh, I taught, so the Jesuits teach as, uh, as seminarians. So part of our training is to, is to teach in high school for a while. Uh, but I was sort of, I guess, in an administrative uh, track. And so they asked me to do that, that they had a lay principal in our school in, uh, in Baltimore that, that uh, left uh, uh, unexpectedly. And uh, so the provincial asked me to take that position. I loved it. I, I like high school work very much. And I particularly enjoy teaching Latin. I, I've been teaching Latin my whole life. I think I said in my acceptance speech that I was just beginning my 50th year. I'm still teaching Latin. I'm teaching Latin at the Gregorian, not to the canon lawyers, but to the, uh, to the seminarians. So. That's been great fun. Unfortunately, it's kind of a challenge to try to teach Latin virtually, you know, but we do our best. You did say that's one of your, uh, teaching Latin was probably your first love. So that's- um... I, I really enjoy it very much. And, you know, we, I help the lads here, lads, the young priests who are here uh, sometimes with their Latin, you know, their texts that they may not be able to figure out. I do a fair amount of encouraging, uh, particularly of the canon law students here. As I said, uh, I think I said to you before we began uh, that there are 18 uh, of the 45 students here who are canon law students at the, uh, the different Roman universities. Is Philadelphia your home? Philadelphia is my home, yes. And, and we have five Philadelphia priests here at the, uh, at the Casa. Um, one more at... Uh, works for the Congregation of the Clergy, uh, and uh, there's a deacon uh, at the at the Mac Seminary, uh, who's from Nigeria originally, but he's uh, a seminarian for Philadelphia. And you mentioned that your St. Joseph's Prep was where you went, and that Father Francis Xavier Mon, who was Jesuit, was one of your teachers that you aspired to be like. Absolutely. That- he was the best teacher I have ever had in my life. So, you know, I've had uh, all kinds of teachers at every level, you know, elementary, secondary, college, graduate school, law school, all those things. Frank Moon was the best teacher I ever had. And Um, he recently passed uh, from COVID? He did, yes, of COVID. He was one of six Jesuits in our um, retirement community in Philadelphia who died early on in, I guess it was in March of 2020. So I'm sure he was proud of you to look back. If he was 94, when we think back 50 years, he was probably in his he was 30s, like 30s or 40s. When, when he taught me, yeah. He was, my, he was the exact age of my mother. Uh, he was, he was four, four days older than my mother. And uh, they actually became great friends, and, uh, especially after I entered. My dad is a convert from Judaism, and um, he, didn't, uh, he wasn't baptized until after I had entered the Jesuits and Frank was his uh, instructor, you know, preparing him for baptism. 
and just baptism, because in those days, uh, the, the RCIA had yet to be invented and uh, confirmation uh, was delayed till some other time when a bishop could do it. You have a couple of places where I call them laugh out loud moments in your talk. One of the things you mentioned was, um, you mentioned Father James Byrne and you said a secret desire of mine was to be a prefect of reading at table like Jimmy Byrne and our yes. initiate. So yeah. You must have pretty good- There, there was <laughs> some laughing out loud here because uh, I invited all of the canon law students to come. And uh, because I'm, you know, I knew I was getting the award and so, I didn't tell them why, because I want to let, let them in on, uh, on the event, but not on the secret, you see. And uh, so they all came, they came into my, uh, into my uh, sitting room, you know, and we all watched it on, on my computer and there was a fair amount of laughing out loud. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know if people know what a prefect of reading a table is, but uh, at least in the old style Jesuit formation houses, uh, there was no talking at meals most of the time. And one of the men had to get into the pulpit and read the book, whatever the book was. And, and Father Byrne was the prefect of reading. He would sit at his table, you know, eating his dinner. And whenever you made a mistake, uh, he would stop you and tell you how the word was pronounced and tell you to go on. He was very gentle, though. He, he wasn't He'd never really embarrassed you. You occasionally embarrassed yourself, but he didn't embarrass you. He was, he was too good for that. Were the readings in Latin? No, the readings were in English, usually some biography or other. I remember one was uh, called uh, John, uh, uh, James Cardinal Gibbons, Prince of Democracy, it was called. And uh, so we had read from that and all kinds of books like that. And then when it, maybe sometime when the dessert came, the rector would tell the reader to read the martyrology. And, and then at the end of the martyrology, you can talk for a little while. It was a wonderful, innocent days, uh, but I'm glad they're gone. <laughs> I think people in formation these days probably are too. You go on <laughs> and then you talk about um, some, some of you, the successors or others that taught you. And one of them that you mentioned um, you say Father John Reed, another Jesuit, that his nickname was Arizona. Arizona, clear and dry, yeah. He was a wonderful teacher, but he would not have been well known, you know, because he taught at Woodstock College in the suburbs of Baltimore uh, until Woodstock closed in 1969 and uh, moved to New York City and survived there for about six years and then closed uh, completely. But he was an, oh, he was an excellent teacher. And as I said, he was always so clear. So canon law and scripture were my two, that's what I did best in, in, uh, in my theology studies as a, you know, a Jesuit scholastic seminarian. Um, and I always found the more abstract things more challenging, you know, like uh, systematic theology, particularly. I had a wonderful classmate, Father John O'Donnell, uh, who eventually was my colleague at the Greg. He taught, he was the Dean of the theology faculty at the Greg when I was a, a canon law professor. And uh, so I didn't understand much of what the professors were saying. And I would ask him and he made it all perfectly clear to me. So I'm grateful to him. And it was wonderful to be teaching at the Greg with him at the same time, he died much too young. Uh, yeah. yeah, you've mentioned that one of the 
things you remember that he taught or said about canon law is that canon law is only as good as the theology that grounds it. Yes. Um, and that to me is very profound. It's yeah. And I mean, I think that's, that is the single most important thing to do when you're teaching canon law, particularly seminarians, because a lot, a lot of times seminarians want to say, well, they want the black letter law, you know, they want to know what they have to do and to try to show them what the, what the value is that a particular norm is there to promote and safeguard. And uh, sometimes they're surprised by it, but I think they learn as a result that canon law really is the most pastoral of the sciences, of the sacred sciences. So that uh, it, it, it's there to preserve what's most important in, in our faith through our practice. So I, I like very much teaching this. I, mean, I never would have imagined that I would be spending a good half of my professional life in priestly formation work. Uh, I got into canon law, well, because I was good at it, you know, in my early studies of it, you know, they looked at my grades, the superiors and said, oh, you're very good at this. I said, yeah, I like it a lot. Why? Because it's practical. I'm just very, I have a very concrete kind of a, of a mind, you know? And that's one of the reasons why I went to law school after it's pretty much the same gifts that are use, useful in both disciplines. But right. um, uh, I got into it because at the time I was, again, as I said, sort of involved in uh, administration, school administration and eventually university administration. And that was the relationship between Catholic universities and ecclesiastical authority, whether it was the authority of the sponsoring religious institute, whether it was the bishop, local bishop, whether it was the Holy See, uh, that was a very hot topic at one time. And I thought, well, gee, maybe I could, uh, maybe I could do some seminal work to try to, you know, try to compose, try to, you know, find a common ground uh, in what was already a, a, a brewing dispute between the university leadership on the one hand and uh, at least some of the bishops on the other. And uh, I, I don't know that I really did that, although that was the topic of my doctoral dissertation. And I wrote some things about that in, um, in some popular journals like America and so forth. But um, I don't know that that continues to be as hot a topic as it was Lots of other things have displaced it. And I think that the universities for better or, or worse have, have gone on fairly uh, independent of, of, uh, of church authority. So that was one of the reasons why I got into seminary work because there the authority of the, of the bishops was quite clear, which wasn't the case so much with the universities. You mentioned when you went to study canon law and, and you say that it was around 1980, it's a very challenging time. And I think this ties in with, as you said, the reason for any given canon, any law, you say you got a chance to see some of the use condendum uh, that were discreetly left by professors. Uh, yes, that was very Roman to see that. Uh, I mentioned that in, in the talk so that the professor, the professors were all part of the code commission, you know, and they would leave. They would leave something like that on the front bench. Now, I, I'm quite convinced. Although they could well say, in their defense, they're all dead now. So it would really, <laughs> one wouldn't be able to engage them in the the topic. But 
they could probably have said, oh dear, I'm sorry, I, I left that by accident, but they left it accidentally on purpose, you know, so that they knew that we all had it because the, the beetle of the class, you know, would collect it and photocopy it and, and then sell, sell it. I mean, not with, they just found that whatever the cost of the photocopying was to each of us. And so we were going around with all of our loose leaf books with all these pages of the, of the provisional uh, texts of the code. And then the professors talked about it because they knew all about it. It was a fascinating time, but we were always responsible for the exams for the 17 code. So we learned the whole, we learned both codes and uh, it was a, it was fascinating time. And you probably didn't have English translations. Now you knew Latin. So the 17 code was yeah. officially only in Latin it, just as it is now, but. Well, I mean, even, I think, I, I mean, I've been taught at the Greg now for about, well, about almost 10 years, I think. I left there in, in 2012. And then when I came back, because they asked me to teach Latin, they, they named me Professor Emeritus. And, but um, it was always the case that the student during the exam was given a, a, uh, an unmarked text of the Latin code. And if he wanted to refer to the code, he had to refer to the Latin text. And uh, even though the exam would be in whatever language uh, the professor and the student shared. So it most, in most of the cases, it was Italian. But if I, as a professor, had an Anglophone student, we, I did the exam in, in English. But with respect to the text of the code, the Latin text was the only one that we used, you know, and that was a good thing. I I would say that I that anyone, if anyone who wanted to study canon law uh, wanted to ask my advice, I probably would say first thing, make sure you know your Latin. I think it's Absolutely. critical. I want to jump real quick to talking about getting your degree, and you mentioned your thesis director. Um, Father Francisco Javier Uruzia, if I say that yep. correctly. And um, he warned you about raising a question in your writing that you did not resolve or at least admit that you didn't resolve. Mm -hmm. So what was what was that about? What, did you leave questions hanging when, when you Yeah, that's right. In other words, it, uh, he said that, uh, that it was important uh, if, you know, to, to bring to a conclusion an issue that you raise in your writing unless you couldn't because uh, the questions were still in dispute. And, uh, uh, but whatever you did, you should uh, admit to it, you know, not to leave a, re a reader hanging. More critical than that with him was simply his, his remarkable ability as a non-native English speaker, because he was a Basque, but he had spent most of his uh, early years teaching in Vietnam. Uh, so he was sent as a missionary uh, to Vietnam and taught in the, uh, the faculty there in Dalat. It was a theology faculty. Uh, and, you know, his Vietnamese was outstanding. But he had done some of his formation in the Philippines, and that's where he learned his English. But he, was a, he had a brilliant mind. And uh, I could write a sentence in English, which, which seemed perfect to me. And he would read it and he said, he would say, well, what else could this mean? And I realized that the non-native English speaker could find ambiguity, which English speakers wouldn't see at all unless it was pointed out to him, to them. And I think that's what, that's what he did very effectively. 
And, and that spurred you to kind of quickly finish your thesis, I think you said. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that I did delay. In fact, I delayed long enough so that I could go to law school. I, never, I didn't finish my thesis right away. I was afraid to because I, know, I knew that it was kind of um, going to close a door for me in the higher education world. And I liked that world. It was fun uh, to work in. And uh, uh, but he told me, you better finish because if I don't, this is a very hot topic. And if you don't finish it, I'm going to give it to someone else. As I said, you know, I should perhaps have been a little bit more demanding with some of my graduate students years later to get them to finish uh, and maybe to have used that same threat that Javier used with me. May he rest in peace. These are all wonderful people. And I think of them, you know, and I'm looking forward to meeting them again someday in another world. Oh, absolutely. And that's what's so fascinating about your rule of law talk. Um, not that everyone speaks about themselves, but you, you give us a picture of the people behind you. And this is what's fascinating because another one that you mentioned, Urbano Navarrete. Ah, uh, yes. He was, the, he was the dean when I first came. And then he was the, uh, he was, uh, the rector of the university. And then he was the president of the, um, of the panel at my doctoral defense. And Cardinal Burke, who had, well, he wasn't a cardinal, he was Father Burke or maybe Monsignor already by then, uh, who was working at the Signatura, he was one of the first in my class to finish his thesis. So Father Navarrete called him up to the dais when I finished my, uh, my defense because I had some, my parents were there and some, you know, some American friends had come and, and Navarrete said to, to Raymond Burke, he said, tell him, tell them that he did quite well in his defense, you know, and so he, he was, his father Navarrete never, never really spoke any English at all. But again, he, he was wonderful years later, you know, when I was teaching at the Greg, as I said in the talk, he helped me to overcome some doubts, you know, that I had early on in my in my consulting time, is that another whole dimension of the kind of work that I've done over the years is to serve as a, as a consultor for the OEC. And you figure, well, if you're being asked to do that, you know, this is pretty important stuff and you don't wanna make any mistakes. And I remember once going to him and telling him that I had a doubt about the case that I was working on. And, and I showed him the opinion that I had written and he said, you don't have any doubt. And, and I think that was, that was a wonderful way of learning how to overcome scrupulosity, which is a terrible burden for any canonist to have. Uh, that's what Father Bayer talked about having what he called uh, fortitudo animi, to have kind of a, a strength of a serenity of, of spirit, you know, to, to, to be able to have confidence uh, in yourself if you have prepared uh, and you know, have, have done your work carefully, you shouldn't really worry about it, which I think is, I mean, that's important for all judges, isn't it? You know, to Absolutely. be able to what moral certitude is all about. In fact, I wrote my JCL thesis at St. Paul University on moral certitude, but from, the, con from, from the prospect of, as a civil lawyer, beyond a reasonable doubt, preponderance of the evidence, and then where moral certitude compares in there. I can't even remember what I concluded, but, but I know what you mean about second guessing and just the scrupulosity. It's interesting. I did, as a number of people, 
sure, uh, uh, Monsignor Alessandro, his uncle as well, did uh, civil law studies after canon law, as I did. And uh, that, to me, was a fascinating, a fascinating experience to see the, the, the differences in those legal systems. Though certain things obviously were very much in common. I remember when I was at Fordham Law School, one of, one of our teachers, and he taught only in the evening division, which is where I went because I was working at the university during the day. And his name is Joe McLaughlin, and he was a, a, a federal appeals judge. And he had been dean of the Fordham Law School. He was a, he was a wonderful man. And uh, so he was teaching us evidence and he, you know, he, he was teaching us about, about an oath. And he said, what's an oath? And he went around the room and people gave kind of some lame answers. And he looked at me finally and said, Father, what's an oath? I said, an oath is a calling upon God to witness to the truth of what we say. And he said, uh, he said you learned that in the Baltimore Catechism, didn't you? I said, yes, Judge. He said, so did I, and it's the right answer. So... <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of these legal systems have some important overlapping characteristics, no? Absolutely. And you said you did your, your civil law studies at Fordham. Was that just because you wanted that balance between them or who, who suggested well, that? I, well, while I was working there, I worked in the president's office, um, sort of chief of staff, and I realized how many legal issues, not so much canonical, but American law issues, came up in the life of the university. So every week when the president met with the vice presidents and I was sort of the, the secretary of that, of that meeting, uh, so many of those meetings revolved around uh, liability questions and uh, so forth. So I was thinking that maybe uh, it would be a good thing for me to get a law degree and maybe uh, serve as a university counsel at some point. So that was the idea. And because I was working at the university, I could go for free. And I liked it. But the other thing, you know, what really was most useful in getting the law degree is that uh, I think I was more credible to do ministerial work among lawyers and judges and, and other civil servants. So when I went to Baltimore to teach in the seminary there, I was the uh, chaplain of the St. Thomas More Society of Maryland. And also, often lawyers would call me and say, well, I read this in the Code of Canon Law. What does this mean? And so I had to use um, American civil law language to translate the meaning of the, of the, the provision of the code, you know. So that was interesting. Oh. A lot of times lawyers will read something and they think that they, they understand it immediately and they don't, uh, they don't simply... Uh, apply the same principle that there are terms of art in the different legal systems and uh, they're not always the same. Sometimes they are like the oath, but sometimes they're not. So. Absolutely. Now in your, in the talk, you also talk about others who helped you along the way and have influenced you. And you kind of say no canonist can work in isolation. And I know you mean that with regard to people, but I think you also just made the point that you can't work in isolation with just canon law. You've also got to look at outside, whether it's civil law or other influences and things too. Yeah, often, I mean, just, uh, you know, helping in a parish and, and listening to a pastor talk about the issues that he was dealing with. Uh, and sometimes, 
you know, there, there can be some ivory tower pitfalls that, that tenant lawyers can fall into and, you know, they lose sight of some of the, some of the issues uh, that, uh, that pastors face. I remember one thing, uh, just one example about uh, who can serve as a godparent. And that's something that the pastors spend what may seem to be an inordinate amount of time uh, dealing with. But uh, they're good opportunities to, uh, you know, to encourage people to uh, become more serious about the practice of their faith, even if they're in an irregular situation. So, I mean, so pastor has to face the, the question about whether or not someone who say is involved in, in uh, an irregular second marriage could serve as a, as a godparent. And after a discussion with the pastor in question, uh, I think we agreed that if that, um, if that prospective godparent was one who did his best or her best to, uh, to live out the faith, uh, notwithstanding their irregular situation, such as, for example, uh, Family Arts Consortio uh, said they should do, like to, to, to pray, to uh, do uh, works of charity, to uh, assist at mass, if not the reception of the sacraments, and to take care of the Catholic education of their own children. I said, if, if people, if, uh, if parents in a irregular situation are looking to that, well, then they may well be very good godparents. So. But it, it's the conversation with the pastor that helped me to, to reach that conclusion. He was a very, he was my parents' pastor. And so some, uh -huh. someone that I know, someone that I know and continue to be very fond of. Towards the end of your talk, um, you say that one of the most satisfying experiences in your recent years of teaching has been when you've been teaching in a classroom where there are uh, religious and seminarians and lay people all in the same course. And you talk about models of collaborative ministry. And so it's a very rare gift for someone like you to be able to ascertain what are the needs of each of those groupings, but to teach them all at once. Well, and to how does and help them to interact effectively with one another. What's ironic is that my first experience of that was at the Greg because it was, you know, freestanding university and it drew from the different colleges so that there would be North American college students and, and, and Lombard college students and Irish and Scots and uh, English and, you know, other uh, Italian, the Capronica students, they were all together and the lay with, the, with the lay students. So we had religious, lay and seminarians. And then in, in uh, the second cycle, uh, we, had, we had priests, both religious and secular and, and again, lay students. Uh, some of them who were, you know, already schooled in Italian civil law. And then I had the same experience again when I was in Boston, because I was teaching in the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. And that had combined lay students and Jesuit students. So the Jesuit seminarians were there and then the lay students with them. And I was asked also to teach canon law at St. John's Seminary in the diocesan seminary, which is on the same campus, the same camp. I mean, there was stone's throw from the one place, one building to the other. And I said, why am I teaching two classes? Why don't I just take 
these two classes, it's the same subject matter, and teach all these people together. And I did that for several years and it was wonderful. And it was, there were different ethos among the different groups, you know, and so the seminarians were all, you know, in their clerical attire and so forth. And the young Jesuits were in sports clothes and the lay people, the, lay, the young lay students were even in more sporty clothes, you know. So they were all there and they were all there in the same room and they got to know one another and like one another. And uh, that to me was a great thing. And I remember, I think, I think it was Cardinal O'Malley, you know, that I talked to about this, uh, you know, so, well, so they're going to be ministering together. So doesn't it make sense uh, that they should be uh, formed together as well? I think that the only, you know, concern about that uh, over the years has been that everyone would be equally well prepared. And that I think was, uh, so sometimes the seminaries have lay formation programs which do not presume the kind of uh, humanities and philosophical background for the study of theology. And that, that can be problematic. Uh, but in, in, the, in this case, everyone in the class was you know, on an even keel. In your final paragraph of your role of law acceptance uh, response, you mentioned that the award was established at a time when many believers wondered what the role of law in a church may be. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the next sentence makes me think that we know what the role of law in the church is. What would you say is the role of law in the church today? I think it's to uh, find the norms that best embody what it is that we believe. You know, there's the famous maxim of uh, Prosper of Aquitaine about the relationship between faith and liturgy, lex orandi, lex credendi. I think we could say lex agendi, lex credendi. So how we act in our uh, relationships with one another, with the hierarchy, lower clergy, laity, religious, how we exercise our rights and obligations within various levels of ecclesial structures, all of that should reflect what it is we believe. And I think that's what the role of law is, to, to codify, to create norms and, and standards to best promote the values that we believe in. I think that's what the role of law is in the church. I think I just found the title for your podcast, so what would you say to a young person in the United States who is thinking about going to study canon law? Well, I mean, that probably is, a, that's a complicated question because of the, of the employment prospects, you know, and also the cost. It's, it's a costly thing to pursue a, a graduate degree in canon law. You know, it's two or three year. I mean, as far as the the norms of the uh, of the Holy See, it's a three year program for a license. Sometimes done, you know, in a more compressed way by some of the faculties, and therefore it's going to be expensive because many of the uh, faculty are not clergy uh, and religious as they may have been in the past. So, I caution someone, you know, who is. Well, I really like this. I like this material. This is so interesting. And I, I'd like to go on and study it further. Well, just make sure that, you know, you, you don't, <laughs> it's in a way that religious who have a vow of poverty 
they are sort of free to go and pursue these kinds of things because they don't have anything to worry about <laughs> with respect to, to the financing of those studies and then eventually to, you know, to find uh, gainful employment in, in it. So that's something that my own enthusiasm for the field uh, might be dampened a bit by, you know, so. But uh, I think that uh, what I said before about making sure that they have the, the appropriate background, including languages, and that they are in a situation where, they're, where they have colleagues, you know, where they're not doing it in isolation with all the other students. That's why I worry a little bit about distance learning. You know, if a, if a student is doing everything, uh, you know, on, at a distance on his or her computer, miles and miles away from the school, is, it, is that person gonna have uh, an opportunity to interact effectively with, with teachers and students? In my whole talk, I said, whatever I've achieved as a canonist, I owe to my teachers and to my classmates and even to my students, you know? Uh, and if you're out of touch with them, that's gonna be a challenge. So I think I would encourage them all to pray that this, uh, that this pandemic end and that we can get back to some kind of reasonable uh, uh, pursuit of our, um, of our lives. I think that's very meaningful to the CLSA, especially the leadership leadership right now because we have been four years now that we have not been able to make a trip to Rome. So you've been a consultant to the Congregation for Catholic Education and the Congregation for Clergy. What is that benefit for the president and vice president, others of the society to come to Rome? What do we what do we gain from that kind of a visit? Uh, well the the people who are uh, the people who work not just the you know the superiors, so the prefect and the secretary, but the but the officials. You know, there are several Anglophone officials in the congregation of the clergy, and the same thing is true in you know in other dicasteries. To make friends and uh, uh, to be able to put a human face on some of these names that uh, that we see, and to know that uh, that people are approachable, uh, that if you don't speak. Italian, which is actually a very good thing to do if you're looking for a language uh, to study. I mean, so much kind of law is really written in Italian and uh, a lot of, of texts that would previously have been in Latin are now in Italian, that official texts that come, I mean, they're English translations almost immediate, but, you know, versione originale, uh, is, is often going to be Italian now rather than Latin. So, uh, but to know that there are people that you can communicate with, I think that's certainly very important. And also to allow them, to allow these officials to see the human face of American canonists. I think that that's important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I hope that you all can come soon. And uh, if, you, if you do, You'll certainly be if if you can get into it, into Italy without any trouble, then you can certainly get into the Casa Santa Maria for to have lunch with us someday. Perfect. You you also have another American confrere that we that helps the society with those kinds of meetings, and that's Father Bob Geisinger. Do you get to see him often? He's my very good friend. Uh, <laughs> we uh, he's well behind me in formation, but when I first went to the Greg to teach, he was uh, just beginning himself, but he was waylaid. He was a uh, procurator general of the Jesuits for a number of years before he went to the uh, 
before he went to work at the CDF. But uh, it's interesting uh, when he was a uh, when he was a, a student at Weston Jesuit School of Theology in Cambridge. I was working for the National Office of the Jesuits in Washington, and uh, uh, Bob Dealey, Monsignor at the time, Dealey was the uh, was teaching uh, canon law at St. John's, and Bob Geisinger went to take his canon law class at St. John's Seminary across town. And Dealey was so impressed by how, how well he did. He said, you know, you really should go on in this stuff. He said, how would you feel about this? He said, oh, I think I'd like that. He said, well, go tell your superiors. And uh, apparently he did. And the superiors thought that that would be just fine. And they said, well, you know, talk to some people about where you should study. So he called me, I'd never met him before. And uh, I said, well, I think you should go to the Greg. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm very careful about saying that sort of thing, given the job that I have now, where I've got men in the house who are from all the different universities, but at that time I didn't have to worry. And uh, besides which, I think that it, it was a place where he would get to know other Jesuit canonists of whom there are not that many. And, uh, and so, and he did, and you know, so, no sooner had he done that, that they uh, asked him to stay on. He is a very able, man and he's the work he's doing is thankless but uh so very very important and uh, we had him here recently one of the things we do here at the casa is once a month we'll bring in someone uh usually a senior uh canonist here in town to uh moderate a practical discussion about you know some uh timely canon law issues which really may not be so uh, readily discussed in their class lectures. And uh, Bob came for that and was very well received. I'm truly hoping we have our convention scheduled for Albuquerque this year. Uh, as of right now, it's a go, but we don't know what's going to happen in the next few months. But I know that our hope is one of these years, we will make sure you get to be here and be recognized. Um, the good thing with the fact that yours was during the pandemic year, October of 2020, is that we now have a recording of you giving your rule of law. We do have that for posterity, but we want to see you in person, of course, and, um, and recognize you at a banquet. I'd love to come. I remember the last, uh... The last meeting in Albuquerque, I don't, I don't remember much about it, uh, but I do remember being at it. And uh, I think it was 2002, so that would have been... Yeah. Um, the, the Jesuits have a, uh, have a parish in Albuquerque, and I remember going to visit it, and uh, I, I don't know if we still have it, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think, I, think I, I went to... I'd never been to Santa Fe, so I went to see Santa Fe and Las Cruces and lots of wonderful places to visit out that part of the country. Well, any final thoughts or reflections or just anything to say to the members of the CLSA? Uh, well, encourage, uh, encourage your friends and, and uh, colleagues uh, to join. You know, I think that it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful uh, uh, source of, of support and, and, and friendship and, and sisterhood, brotherhood. Uh, I've loved it. I, I joined in 1982. I got my licensure in 1982 and I joined and I went to my first meeting. I think it was in San Francisco. And uh, the only time that I, I really didn't attend the meetings was while I was teaching at the Greg because it was always the first, 
the convention was the same as the first week in school. And the other thing is probably to be, if they're old timers in the society, uh, to think about occasionally going to uh, the British Irish meeting, which uh, I have found very, very congenial. I've been going to that for a long time, especially while I'm in Rome, it's at a less uh, uh, problematic time of the year. It's in May, early May, sort of the end of class, beginning of exam. So, uh, you know, it's a little hiatus there. So I have regularly gone to that and have made friends with all those people as well. So, uh, and, and a number of CLSA members, some of, you know, very distinguished people like uh, Fred, uh, Fred Eastman and uh, uh, other, people who have been very active in the uh, kind of law society have, uh, of America have been kind of regular uh, attendees there. And, and then, you know, they, some of them uh, come to our meetings as well. So. Absolutely. Well, I think that just goes to show, as you said, no canonists can work in isolation. We need yeah. each other for so many reasons. So, well, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Well, it's uh, great to talk to you, Donna, and uh, uh, I hope that uh, we'll have the opportunity to, to meet in person sometime before too long. Absolutely. So thanks for being with us. We will keep you and all of your uh, the folks there at the Casa Santa Maria in our prayers and thoughts, and hopefully we'll make it to Rome one of these days. Excellent. When in Rome. Well, yeah, you'll be a hundred times welcome. Good. Well, thank Bye you now. so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.